Thanks for being with us this morning. If you are a driver in this province, you can expect your basic insurance rates will be going up. We're not 100% sure on the exact number at this point, but some new numbers out this week, this past week, looking at losses at ICBC certainly don't paint a great picture. Uh, the BC government has released uh, the second quarter financial results of the public insurer, and uh, they are looking at a much larger than expected loss of about $890 million in this fiscal year. ICBC has already posted a net loss of $582 million for the first six months of the current fiscal year. Well, let's bring in Chris Sims, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Chris, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, wanted to talk to you a little bit more. I know you were uh, talking with Mike Smith when he was filling in on this station for Simi Sarah, and you brought up the idea, and you've talked about this in the past, of switching the model and turning ICBC into more of a co-op. So explain exactly what would that look like? So the reason why we're suggesting this is because obviously many people don't want to put up with ICBC anymore. We're forced right now to pay the highest rates in all of Canada. And in this day and age, not being allowed to shop around to find your own car insurance is weird. And so we understand, though, that for some reason people are attached to ICBC. In particular, some governments are attached to ICBC. So fine, let's take ICBC and turn it into a co-op. So it's similar to a credit union. That way, the people who like it can choose it and they can keep it and then open that new co-op alongside of it up to competition. And that way, other companies can come into British Columbia and start offering basic auto insurance to drivers here in this province. The thing that would be good about this is, number one, it allows people who like the idea of collective cooperative insurance, like ICBC, to choose it. It also will take politicians' hands out of the cookie jar. It would no longer be this, you know, weird form of a crown corporation that they can just scoop money out of whenever they want to. And those of us who want to shop around and actually try to save some money and find our own auto insurance can do so. And so we think it's win-win. And we actually do have other insurances um, being offered in a co-op format. There's actually a form of fire insurance that started being offered way back in, I think it was 1908, in the Fraser Valley. And it was by farmers who apparently way back then for some reason, couldn't find their own form of fire insurance. And so they formed their own cooperative. And it's been running so well that it's now apparently uh, available all across Canada, all the way into Ontario. So we do have some models, including the forms like a credit union to follow. So that's why we're asking for this form of change. And do you think it would help in that uh, there's always a a bit of a debate when we talk about bringing in uh, private insurers and people saying, oh, be careful what you wish for because your insurance uh, will go up. Uh, But we've also seen numbers, I think it was a Fraser Institute report that showed that in BC right now, the good drivers, uh, people who've been driving for years, who have not caused crashes, have a great driving record, are in fact subsidizing the younger, the higher risk drivers. Do you think it would change that? Yes, it would, because one, people would be able to take their money and their business and their driving records elsewhere. They would be able to say, hey, you know, I'm a great driver. I've been very careful all this time. I'm going to go to try to find some lower rates. And they wouldn't be 
forced into this government monopoly, and they wouldn't be forced into paying these high rates. And the Fraser Institute uh, report was bang on, and it's exactly the same that we've been finding in our own studies here at the CTF. And so it's just one of those things that makes you scratch your head sometimes wondering why it is that British Columbians are stuck with this model of insurance and that we're not allowed to have a choice. And the way I try to explain it to people, you know, I was born and raised here and I first started driving here and I've got a great driving record. I've also lived across the country in different regions like Ontario and Nova Scotia. I even lived in Quebec for a little while. And it's baffling to many people who've lived in different parts of Canada who then come here and they fall off their chairs at the cost of insurance. And it's just not fair. And what I don't understand is why some people just seem so attached to ICBCs if that's the only way to get auto insurance. But the Fraser Institute reports absolutely right. If you take a look at our average rate, which is about $1,700 per year, okay, that's the average rate that British Columbian drivers pay. It's the highest in all of Canada. Take that and realize that more than 80% of us qualify for the great driver discount, the safe driver at 40% quote-unquote discount. It's still that high. Just wait until they move the goalposts on what is and is not a good or bad driver. And then there's also the changes that they're making where they're billing people extra money now going forward if they allow anybody else to drive their car for a certain number of times per year. That's going to ding older people who have adult children, usually in university, you know, in their early 20s, who let them drive, you know, the mom and dad taxi every now and then. They're now going to be paying even more. And so this is why it's a mess. And we really want some choice here. Uh, it also, and, and I guess, too, one of the questions being, well, how would uh, a private insurer then be able to make money uh, while still uh, charging the cheaper rates? And because one of the things that we don't often talk about with ICBC, too, is the, the actual mandate of ICBC, the fact that they're also involved with road testing and they're involved in so many things other than just insurance. And maybe that's something, uh, because obviously the current government is very reluctant. They're not going to get rid of ICBC, but maybe the mandate needs to change. The mandate could change. Uh, We understand the current government is leery, but that's actually why we offered the idea of a co-op, because we think that that fits really well with the philosophy of the NDP. We really do. Um, And so that's why we said, okay, fine. If you don't want to tow this thing to the scrapyard, overhaul it and change it into a co-op and then let people have the choice. They're all about democracy, right? They're all about freedom and they're all about those sorts of things. And so that's why we're offering that. And then if you also take a look at other provinces, this is the thing. Other provinces still have road safety. Other provinces still have driver's licensing facilities. They all do these road checks. They all do this stuff that ICBC does right now, but it's just handled in different ways. The Ministry of Transportation will do it, Public Safety will do it in some cases, um, RCMP and different police officers will take on some of these different roles and responsibilities. Those responsibilities are dispersed amongst different levels and forms and arms of government. It's not as if, you know, it's just Mad Max <laughs> out in Ontario and in, uh, in Alberta. It's just that we've gotten so used to ICBC because it's been around since the 70s. And what we're trying to urge British Columbians is to look around and realize that we don't need to be forced to pay these rates. We can try other models and we can shop around. Just to give you an anecdotal example, I was speaking with a gentleman who runs a small business in Langley, and he had moved here two years ago from Montreal 
Quebec, interestingly, has the lowest auto insurance rates in Canada. They, of course, are special because they have their own distinct way of doing things where the government covers injuries to the person, the physical person, and they have private auto insurance compete for damage to vehicles. You can find auto insurance there everywhere, everywhere. They're like cell phone kiosks. They're little wickets set up in banks everywhere. And he was telling me that he spent about $35 a month on his auto insurance. And then he moved here. And he's, he, he, he said, I wanted to move back. I can't believe it. This is, you know, a 50-year-old man, perfect driving record. And now he's paying through the nose. And this is what we're trying to urge people. Look around, call up your friends, call up your family in different provinces and ask them what they pay. I did the numbers, for example, this past summer on something like a Class C motorhome. And I'm not talking a big fancy one. I'm talking one from like the year 2000 worth about ten grand, right? Because so many of us like to use motorhomes and campers in the summer. If you insured that vehicle with a perfect driving record in Burnaby, it would cost you $1,400 through ICBC. If you take that same vehicle, same driver, and insure it in Calgary, it's $400 a year. It's a $1,000 difference just because they can shop around in Alberta. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty big difference. And, and also the argument can be made, I think, too, is where was the fear in letting in opening it up to private insurance? If it doesn't work, if it doesn't, if private insurance doesn't bring a competitive uh, a product, then people, if they still have the option of an ICBC and co-op form or whatever form, if it's so great, people will still use it. Exactly. And it's just, it's strange that we even sometimes have to have this conversation because this model of choice when it comes to consumers and all those sorts of things has been done for decades and we know it works. Exactly. So if people love ICBC and it works so well, well then make it compete. Then go, you can go back to ICBC if you choose to. The way I look at it, imagine if the government of British Columbia owned the only grocery store in all of BC, if they owned the only chain. There's no competition, no price matching, no coupons, no flyer sales, nothing. You might as well not even look at the flyer sales. Just drive to the government store and pay what you're told. Imagine what sort of food would be offered there. Imagine what sort of like opening hours and services that you'd get there. It would be horrible. The reason why we have good grocery stores and good food on offer with competitive prices is because there's competition. And so that's why we're trying to encourage this to happen here in B.C. The one little shard of hope that we've seen recently is that at the recent B.C. Liberal uh, Policy Convention, they passed a resolution saying they want to stop the ICBC monopoly. We agree. We went there. We had a, we had a guy dressed up in his top hat saying we need to end the monopoly. You know, we had our bumper stickers handing out, and we're encouraged by that. And any party that wants to make that promise, we will gladly hold them to that once they win power. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, Chris Sims, always great to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Likewise, have an awesome Sunday. There is a bit of an update out of a case that remains before the Supreme Court in this province, and it has to do with penalties that were going to be in place against doctors and private clinics, and they've now been put on hold as the case continues. Uh, Dr. Brian Day joins me on the line now. He's the medical director of the Canby Surgery Centre, a former president as well of the Canadian Medical Association. Uh, Dr. Day, thanks so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome, Joan. Good morning. What is happening uh, with uh, the case uh, that that you have been leading in court right now? 
Well, um, the case is ongoing, as you um, just said. This is a lot more than just uh, holding off on penalties, because if you look at what the judge has done, and and it's a different judge from uh, the judge who's overseeing the main trial, but in order to obtain uh, this injunction against the government, which is very unusual uh, in Canadian history, um, she had to go through the preliminary evidence, and she actually ruled that um, patients were suffering uh, physical and or psychological harm on wait lists, and that harm would be increased um, if um, if the clinics were not allowed to continue operating. I mean, that's a very substantial um, statement, and, and it, the 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 reason she ruled that is the government's own data. Their own documents show exactly that. Statistically, the government's data on wait lists show that patients with serious illnesses and serious uh, problems waiting are waiting and suffering while they wait. And, of course, this case is not just about a clinic. There, there are five patient plaintiffs in this case as well. So we're one of six plaintiffs, and, um, and those patients have all suffered at the hands of wait lists in British Columbia. Uh, so the judge is basically ruled and, and in the ruling said what you've been saying all along. Um, yes, yes, she has. And, 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 you know, one of the things that's going on here is this is, this is a government basically bullying its people. It's act, we, we had a poll done in March of this year. Uh, we didn't have it done. It was done by someone else. And, and 81% of the public support our case but the government believes it's in a position that that's irrelevant. And it's very analogous to other things that are going on where the government is not acting in the, uh, on the same page as the people. I mean, we see this with, with the Uber debate where 75 to 80% of the public want Uber and the government is just uh, putting a block. So the, this is a government that is uh, basically saying we are here to rule you, not serve you. And what has happened with, uh, when we talk about uh, the wait lists and the ones that the judge specifically was referring to, because on the one hand, we hear from uh, this government saying that we're going to open up uh, operating space, we're going to increase the times to deal with these wait lists, that's why we don't need the private clinics, and we're going to go after them and find them. But what has actually been happening with the people on those lists? Well, those patients were put on hold, so some have already, you know, some have been suffering as a result of this action. But now those patients, these clinics have been operating for 25 years. This is, and and one of the things the government also doesn't like to declare, but it's a fact, is that we opened right in the middle of a 10-year rule of the NDP government. We, we opened with the support of the NDP government. And they're trying to portray this as a political thing where the last government introduced private, um, allowed private clinics. They introduced them. We have been operating for 25 years. The stat statistics show that we're helping the public system. The evidence shows that patients um, are not waiting. But what they do is they come out with, with um, false statistics that say we're doing thousands more of these, whereas, in fact, they need to do over 100,000 more. That they, they come out saying, look, we've increased the number of MRIs by thousands. But if you look at the statistics, we're down near the bottom of the OECD country in the number of 
of MRIs. And as I said, we have the government's own data, which they spent weeks trying to stop from going before the court. This is government data that they were forced to hand over to us by the courts. We have that data that shows that patients... Patients with cancer who, um, who, who are supposed to be treated very quickly, something in, in certain cases over 80% are waiting what, by the government's own definition, much longer than is medically acceptable and safe. And so what does this do as far as this is a, a different judge, as you mentioned, uh, that's hearing the, the primary case in that's before the courts. This puts the fines on hold. This puts the penalties on hold. Uh, is that dependent, though, on how the, 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 the actual case is, is decided and when we get a decision in that? Yes, that case will carry on and probably through to the middle of next year. It's, it's a case in which the government has been trying to to work a filibuster. It's been trying to keep evidence out of the court, block their own data, and that's why it's taken, it will have taken almost three years by the time this case is over. The Chaoli case, which was very, very similar, um, was already been all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And, um, And in that case, That case before this equivalent court in Quebec took six weeks because the government in Quebec realized that if there's a a valid constitutional question, it's important that the government should want to know um, whether it's a violation of the Charter. And history is full of examples, um, as, as for example, um, laws against... Um, gay marriage against homosexuality. When I was a kid, it was illegal to be a homosexual against assisted dying, against safe injection sites, against abortion. History is full of constitutional cases where laws were ruled unlawful. And that's the case with this law. It is an unlawful law when, as the Supreme Court of Canada has already ruled, patients are Canadians uh, not not Quebecers, but Canadians are suffering and dying on wait lists. So this is the same court that has ruled affirmatively in all of those other areas. You cannot have a law that forces, and that this has been said by the current judge, that forces patients to suffer uh, serious harm. And is it frustrating to you, or and I know you can't go into the details because of privacy, nor would we want you to, but you've touched on this before. Here you have this government that is wanting to penalize, wanting to, to shut down these clinics. You must have treated members of this government in these clinics. We've treated leaders of the NDP government uh, of the NDP uh, historically and we've treated leaders from the groups that are in court opposing us in our clinics we've had people on on the doorsteps of our clinic protesting who have had treatment at our clinics the the, um, the if the truth could come out um, people would be shocked but but we also have new evidence now that we're just finding out because government has spent spent years withholding evidence we have new evidence that the government has deliberate and their institutions have actually altered wait time data um, to make it look better than it is because the 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 the, the, the way that that data is collected is governed by the 
government and documented by the government. But that, those documents, even when they're altered, show that patients in, in British Columbia are among the longest patients, among those waiting the longest in the whole of Canada. And the other thing I must stress, there is nowhere in the world that has legislation that says a government is able to force its people to, who are suffering on wait lists to stay on those wait lists without the option of private health insurance being able to cover it. And we have an example in BC with injured workers where workers' compensation insurance covers it. We're, we're saying we're going to court to say we want um, we want everyone to have the same rights that Quebecers have under, this, under the Constitution. We want uh, them to have the same rights that if you're injured on the job, um, and, and, and so on. So it's a very, very um, big case, but we're, we're faced with the, with the government trying to block evidence going before the court. Uh, when do you think there'll be a decision, or is it too soon to know? We hope that... Um, by the end of next year, because the judge will have to write a very, um, because this court, this court case has gone on for so long, the, the government will have to um, produce, produce uh, their evidence, in, or they're going to give their evidence in the new year, and then the judge will, will need time to write his verdict. And um, so probably towards the end of the, end of the year. All right. We will continue following uh, along as this plays out in the court. Uh, Dr. Day, thank you again for your time. Always uh, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Jill. Keeping with a bit of a healthcare theme this half hour, uh, we shift focus, though, and talk about pneumonia. And unless you've had it or a loved one has had it, you probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. But my next guest, a lung champion who's had a successful lung transplant, is here to talk about this. Uh, Darcy Murdoch, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Jill. It's great to be here this morning. What would you like people to know about pneumonia? Well, I've had pneumonia twice in my life and three bacterial infections, which um, is a form of pneumonia. And what I'd like people to know is to get your flu shot and your pneumonia shot uh, as as often as you can to ward off this uh, seemingly deadly disease. Uh, you're right. We don't uh, we don't think about it too much. I, I think people are probably more uh, thinking or top of mind is the flu shot, especially at this time of year. Um, is it a p- specific group, though, as far as a pneumonia shot uh, that is targeted in a group group, the group that should be thinking about this or getting this? Yes, actually, there is. It's people 65 and over mostly. But it, it's, it's a good plan for everybody. But um, people 65 and over, they're, they're at a high increase of uh, of getting pneumococcal pneumonia. And, you know, as you, as you age, your immune system goes down. And, of course, my, since my lung transplant, my immune system has weakened as well. So I make sure that I get a flu shot every year and a pneumonia shot when the time comes because uh, the, the numbers are rising of people 65 and older being hospitalized and, and passing away. And do, is, there, is it a misconception, do you think, of pneumonia that people, I think people get that it's a serious condition, but is it a misconception that it's something that you get and that you make a full recovery from? Well, if you're younger and you get it, you have a better chance of getting a recovery from it. But I, I think it's a bit of a misconception, yes, because it, it, we're dealing with a lethal disease here that can, that can take you out or, or cause problems in the future as well, especially for the our senior population.
And and as you mentioned too, somebody with a, a compromised immune system is more susceptible to it. Uh, do we know what causes it? How, how do people get it? Well, it usually starts off with a flu, and then uh, and then gets right into pneumonia, where it affects your lungs, it blocks your airways, uh, serious uh, mucus problems. Uh, it can just uh, make you weak. Uh, you'll, you'll have difficulty performing daily activities, including walking, dressing, food preparation climbing stairs, anything like that. It's just, it just really wreaks havoc on your lungs. And do you think, would people know for sure the difference between uh, having pneumonia or perhaps having a bad flu? At the, at the start, they would, yeah. But, you know, you, it's like a flu. When you get a flu, you get the shakes and the, uh, and the, uh, the sweats and the, uh, the, the sweating at the same time. And then the yellow and green mucus comes up. So that's a telltale sign there. And, you know, you, you just get, end up getting sicker and sicker and sicker. So it's, it's time to get in to see the doctor or emergency when you have symptoms like that. Right. Uh, and do you think people talk to their doctors enough or maybe should talk to their doctors more about uh, pneumonia and about prevention? Personally, I don't. No, I don't think they do at all. I talk to people, do you get a pneumonia shot? No, nah, I don't. Do you get a flu shot? No, nah, I don't believe in it kind of thing. So I think people just, uh, you know, they've got an attitude of all cross that bridge when I get to it. But uh, I remember all my life, I've got flu shots every year, and very seldom did I ever get the flu. But it wasn't until I had my uh, lung uh, condition called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis that I started getting sicker and sicker. I, I, and I suppose it would make sense, like you said, if you're in that condition, you're a bit more susceptible uh, to uh, any of the bugs that are out there. Indeed. I have to be really careful. I have to wash my hands frequently and stay away from large crowds and try not to shake hands with people. If I go to touch a doorknob, I'll use the sleeve of my coat. Uh, you know, washing my hands constantly, constantly. But, you know, you do things like that and, you're, and you stay uh, compliant, uh, you're, you're pretty good. And the reason I had pneumonia a couple of years ago, I ended up in the hospital for five days because it can, it can take you out. Because I got, I got that from a roommate of mine. So it wasn't caused by my lungs. So I'm very compliant with what I do. But still, you have to be so careful nowadays. People sneezing without covering their nose, their mouth, their their mouth and just, you know, just, just things like that. Hmm. Yeah. And as far as the pneumonia shot, do you know how, is it, is it as easy as getting access to a flu shot or what do people do? It's very easy. You have to go to your doctor and nowadays it's a two, two step process. They'll give you your first shot, which is called the Prep, uh, Prevnar 13, I think it's called. And then you follow up after about three months with another one called Pneumonax 23. So, you know, they really advise that for people 65 and up, but I was getting it when I was in my 40s and 50s. And it's really easy. You just make an appointment for your doctor, uh, go in and get the shot done, and then you go back again in three months, like I said, and then, then you're good. And that, it's good for 10 years this time. All right. And, yeah. uh, all right. So, and, so, and if people, I know a lot of people don't have doctors. They could probably go to a walk-in clinic or, that, or get around it that way. Indeed, they could, sure. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well... Yeah. Uh, Darcy, very good advice, especially given we are uh, in uh, the winter season and the weather is uh, changing and it's top of mind for a lot of people. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure. And make sure you get your flu shot there, Jill. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Well, the numbers might surprise you uh, when looking at Canadians and how many Canadians borrow money to help pay for prescription drugs. But that is uh, the finding in research done by Ashra Kolhatkar, who is the lead author of a new study and the research coordinator at UBC's Centre for Health Service and Policy Research. And Ashra Ashra joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being here this morning. 
Thanks so much for having me. What exactly were you looking at when it uh, came to prescription drugs and uh, Canadians and how uh, Canadians pay for them? We were looking at all the different challenges that Canadians face in terms of paying for prescription drugs. So whether they're having to take less of the drugs um, because they can't afford to pay for them. So um, perhaps they're not taking their medication at all, or maybe they're taking it every other day or half a pill instead of the whole pill. Um, we also looked at other trade-offs that patients are making. So um, we asked about uh, whether they're paying less for things like heat or food or other medications or other health care needs um, because they're having to balance the cost of their prescription medications. And what did you find? Um, well, in the, the work that we published this week, um, we found that approximately 731,000 Canadians said that they had to borrow money to pay for prescription drugs in um, the previous year. Um, but in other work that's part of the same study, we found um, approximately 1.7 million Canadians said that they um, had to take less of their drugs because they couldn't afford them. Um, roughly the same, like 731,000 Canadians said they had to pay less for food. 206,000 Canadians said they had to pay less for heat. So all of these things are um, consequences that patients face um, as a result of high-cost drugs. And the numbers, uh, as far as they break down in age, I thought it was interesting because I think we tend to automatically go to a place where we think people who are older are taking more drugs and might be in this scenario. Uh, but it found that uh, respondents, uh, particularly looking at the age group 19 to 34, uh, were, were very much a part of this. Yeah, I mean, it's not at all the case that we saw that older people were more affected by these problems. Um, Across all of our results, we found that Canadians aged 19 to 34 had the highest rates of basically all of these challenges. And um, that can be explained by some of the other things that are also associated with um, experiencing these problems more. So, for example, we saw that Canadians who either have only government insurance or no pre no uh, prescription drug insurance at all had higher rates of these things. And so we would kind of expect that to also map onto younger Canadians because they're earlier in their careers, they may not have jobs that have private insurance, those kinds of things. Right. And if somebody's say, working a part-time job or going to school and working a couple of part-time jobs, uh, then they would be, if they were taking uh, prescription drugs, they'd be, they'd be paying for those out of pocket. Yeah. Yeah. Depending on what province they live in. Yeah. Uh, what else did it uh, tell you about, to, was it people borrowing money? Did, it, did, it, did you study or determine the amounts of money or, or if people were going into debt for this? Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to ask um, how much they were borrowing or um, how they were borrowing it. So, for example, like, is it from family or friends or is it on a credit card or those kinds of things? Um, we were limited in the, the number of questions we were able to ask as well as how detailed they were. But um, that would be something that we would be interested in for future research. And uh, and you talked about the high cost uh, of drugs and uh, the fact that some people will take less of their prescriptions or or perhaps even, I suppose, uh, go without if they can't afford. Mm -hmm. um, was it surprising to you at all that, that something that obviously you're prescribed something for your health, that, that people were making those decisions? I mean, unfortunately, it isn't um, surprising. And in Canada, prescription drugs fall into this weird uh, gray zone in terms of coverage where... If a drug is prescribed in a hospital setting, it's covered. And if it's not, then um, you're on your own to rely on out-of-pocket payments and your um, private insurance and those kinds of things. Um, 
like there's a lot of research on this topic and unfortunately um, these these behaviors are not uncommon and and what about uh, did it look at at all say generic drugs or, or cheaper alternatives if, if that is what people are turning to um, we weren't really able to look into that we did um, we haven't published the findings of this part of the survey yet but we did ask patients whether they're pharmacists or their um, prescribers like their physicians have helped them come up with lower cost solutions. Um, And it seems to be that it's not, there aren't very high rates of that, Um, especially with physicians. Um, Patients tend to find that um, maybe their physician isn't the best person to ask about these things, which I think is a problem and and something that we should look into for um, policy and just future research. And I would imagine this is pointing at uh, people who are proponents of a pharmacare system or some kind of system uh, that would be more uniform in bringing uh, prescription drugs into uh, into the healthcare system. Yeah, I mean, we definitely, our results are pretty unequivocal that patients do need help paying for prescription drugs and whether that help comes in the form of universal pharmacare or um, provincial level policy changes like what we've seen in BC where um, starting January 1st next year, they're changing the deductible structure of Fair Pharmacare, which is our um, government uh, prescription drug program. Or in Ontario, they introduced OHIT Plus, which is for um, young people who lack private drug insurance. So whatever the form that help takes, we certainly um, can say that Canadians do need that help. All right. Uh, you mentioned there's still uh, some other research. Are you going to be looking into this matter or into the subject more? Yeah, we have um, we have a lot of data just from this survey alone that we have yet to look into. We also did a qualitative study listening to, um, we did interviews with patients, so that's a lot of really rich, um, very personal data that we are looking forward to analyzing as well. Yeah, well, it's certainly a topic uh, that a lot of people, especially people uh, if they are taking prescription drugs uh, for the long term, um, are, are interested in. And I would imagine, too, uh, just uh, one more question on that. There, mm-hmm. there must be a difference between somebody who gets a one-time prescription drug compared to somebody who's on long-term care. Yeah, for sure. I mean, something we see really clearly in our qualitative work is that um, patients say, you know, if it's a really expensive drug, but they know that it's a one-off, they're willing to make a number of adjustments in their lives and in their budgets in order to pay for that. But if you're looking at a costly drug over a long term or even a not very costly drug um, over the long term, then that really changes the calculus because you have to manage that over a much longer period of time. All right, uh, we will leave it there. Uh, but very interesting uh, research and findings. Uh, Ashra, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate uh, your time with us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. Well, if you have been following along what has been happening in Victoria, specifically at the legislature, and you are confused by it, fear not, you are not alone. So we are bringing on Keith Baldry, a Global BC's chief political reporter, to walk us through it. Keith, good morning. Good morning, Jill. What do we know at this point as to what's going on over there? <laughs> it's, it changes almost daily. So the latest thing is that now the uh, House leaders are going to have a, or trying to arrange a meeting of what's called the Legislative Assembly Management Committee with the Speaker of the House, Daryl Plakis, to try to sort out a couple things. Chiefly among them now, the Liberals are concerned, the B.C. Liberals are concerned, 
that when they suspended the, the uh, clerk of the legislature and the sergeant at arms, they may have done so on improper or inaccurate legal advice. And that is the argument being put forward by the lawyers for the two officials who have been uh, shown the door, uh, put on administrative leave. So Daryl Plekis, the speaker, says, sure, let's meet at uh, Tuesday at 3 o'clock, which is at the very end of the legislative uh, sitting. That It will rise on Tuesday and not sitting in until February. And Mary Polak, the Liberal uh, House leader, is pressing for a meeting earlier than that. So we're sort of taking a respite, a bit of a break on the weekend here. Uh, but everybody's getting ready to come back on uh, tomorrow when the House resumes sitting, and we're right back into arguing about exactly what's going on, uh, how things should proceed, and whether or not this thing should have, be, should have uh, sort of started in the first place in terms of suspending these two. Uh, so when we hear from, say, Andrew Wilkinson, who says we may have been taken for a ride and been given bad advice, when the, the vote was made or when, when the, the decision was made to suspend uh, the, the clerk and the sergeant at arms, did they not know what the investigation was about? No, they didn't. Uh, this is, there's a lot of, uh, I think, some misconceptions out there. Nobody knows what this investigation is about outside of maybe uh, Daryl Pleck is the speaker and his special aide, his assistant, Alan Mullen, who's also a, a figure of controversy here. But uh, Mike Farnworth, the uh, NDP House Leader, Mary Polak, the Liberal House Leader, Sonia Firsten, the Green Party House Leader, did not know what the invest- investigation was about. Still don't know. Nobody does. But all they were told is that there was an investigation by the RCMP underway and that special prosecutors had been appointed. The lawyers for the two suspended officials have argued that there is no constitutional authority for the Speaker or the House Leaders to suspend uh, these two independent officers of the legislature from office. That uh, that just can't uh, happen. They are politically independent, and political parties amongst themselves have no power to t- take the action that they took. And that's why Mary Polak now, in the wake of that legal argument, and that is a legal argument from the lawyers, is pressing for a meeting to potentially reconsider this motion. I don't think it'll get that far, but uh, the Liberals now, that's why, Andrew, as you say, Andrew Wilkinson is saying, uh, maybe they were taken for a ride uh, and took this extraordinary action on the basis of what could be faulty legal advice. And bring us up to date then, uh, Alan Mullen, which was a name I think a lot of people had never heard before this past week. And then it comes out that he actually uh, was a co-worker with the Speaker, uh, with uh, Mr. Plekis at the Kent Institution in the past. Uh, there is some uh, confusion on was there invest- an investigation did he investigate did he not investigate what do we know about this individual well that's where it's very confusing so alan mullen it's interesting he's been on the job since january when daryl pluckus the speaker brought him in and you know the legislature is like this small little village everybody sort of knows everybody uh and i knew alan mullen just to say hi to i had no idea what he was doing i thought well, that's interesting the speaker's brought in a, a, a hired aide that's never happened before but so what uh, he's a very affable, pleasant fellow. And then we suddenly learn this week that he's actually been operating like a private detective in the legislature for the last uh, 10 months and was invest by his own admission, was investigating uh, the, the clerk of the legislature and the sergeant-in-arms and then forward his findings. He, he accumulated a bunch of information and he forwarded it to the RCMP in August. And now he's emerged as sort of the spokesman 
congressman, spokesperson for the Speaker's office in the midst of this this developing scandal. So he is, uh, but he is not a licensed private investigator, and you're not allowed to actually conduct investigations like this unless you are a licensed uh, private investigator and you get a license from the province. Uh, he is not a lawyer. Um, but he is a, a former, a, a friend of Daryl Plekis, the Speaker, going back to their days in Abbotsford. He's done constituency work for the Speaker, uh, and he's emerged as a, as a figure of controversy. Like I say, he's a, he's a very affable, outgoing, confident fellow, but uh, as a result of the controversy, the NDP insisted that former Attorney General Wally Opal suddenly get parachuted into the Speaker's office as another special advisor to sort of bring some calm and normalcy to the situation. So it's an extraordinary situation, the likes of which we've never seen before, and it's an ongoing situation, and uh, I think the temperature will start to die down as the focus reshifts to the investigation of the two table officers. But right now the Speaker's office is very much under a cloud, as is the Speaker himself, and I'm not sure which way this is going to go. Uh, so, so back on Wednesday, when Alan Mullen uh, spoke and he told reporters that he'd been working on the investigation, he said the allegations were serious and that the goal is to have greater transparency. That implies that he knows what they are about. Do you think he knows? I think he does know. Uh, he was the start of this whole thing. Uh, I think he's uh, very much aware of what the what the investigation is all about. He's the one who accumulated some information and forwarded it to the RCMP. So if there's one person who knows what's going on, it's Alan Mullen, uh, you know, international man of mystery. Uh, it's, uh, uh, and I don't think he, sh- he has not shared that as far as I know with anyone, perhaps with the exception of the speaker himself, Daryl Plekis, but certainly there's this impression that the, what, what's odd about this, Jill, is that the MLAs voted unanimously to remove the top two officials of the legislature from office without knowing why they were doing that. Uh, They did not know what the allegations were, and they still don't know what the information is. All they knew was that there was a RCMP probe and that special prosecutors had been appointed. But it's an argument to, uh, to be made, okay, even with that knowledge, is that enough to remove these two from office uh, uh, without knowing exactly why you were doing that. And that's why it's got a lot of MLAs from all sides scratching their heads saying, what do we do here? You know, is this, is this actually the proper course of action? I think there was a bit of a, a, a rush to judgment, perhaps. Uh, the House leaders met on Monday night with the Speaker. They were told minimal information. They briefed their caucuses the next morning, uh, saying we're going to take this extraordinary vote. Uh, without telling their caucuses, their caucus colleagues exactly what the allegations were. It was basically a whipped vote, as all votes are in the legislature. Just vote this way, because I'm telling you that. Uh, and, uh, and and that was that. And it, I don't think any MLA saw what was coming in terms of the post-vote uh, mayhem that's occurred, when people are now questioning whether or not there was they actually had the authority to do this. And certainly the lawyers for uh, Craig James and Gary Lenz, the, the agreed parties here, are fighting back. And uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this ends up in law, as a lawsuit, as sort of just a, an ongoing litigation from those two who've been, you know, I think wrongly humiliated. No matter what, what happened here, they served for a number of years at the people's behest, and they were 
escorted out of the building by police officers, which I just thought was um, way uh, much of an overreaction. It also, doesn't it seem odd in that, like you said, they they made this vote, they took this leap of faith, vote this way, do this, trust uh, trust us, this mm-hmm. is what we should do. So, but something, you would think something had changed them because this investigation had been going on for some time. So how were Craig James and, and Gary Lentz able to do their jobs while under investigation until suddenly they weren't? That is a very good question, and that's right at the heart of this whole thing, and we have not been able to get answers. And I think that's a question the House leader should have asked the Speaker at that, at that pivotal meeting on uh, Monday night. It's interesting, you know, after that, that decision was made, Mary Polak refused to talk about this whatsoever. I, I was in her office, and she said, look, I can't talk about this. I can't talk about this now. Uh, she's realizing, as Andrew Wilkinson, they may have been played here and taken for a ride, and now she is asking questions, saying, what the heck happened here? What legal advice were we operating under? I think those questions should have been posed at that Monday night meeting, and now they're being posed belatedly. Uh, and I think uh, I think the House leaders have some answering to do here, that whether or not they just just folded their their, t- their tent here uh, at just at the word of the Speaker, who is not, you know, he's he's sort of a rookie in this role, and to take his word that this that something had changed that required the removal of these two senior officials, um, I, in retrospect, I think they're probably agreeing they shouldn't have done that, and now they're scrambling to try to try to save face, uh, and uh, that's the reason why we're going to potentially have this emergency meeting of the Legislative Management Committee for, with the Speaker and the House leaders to try to figure out what step to take next. If it comes at the end of the session, though, can they take action, or how will that play out, do you think, on Tuesday? Well, the only way to revisit this is to to reconsider the motion, and the motion could come back in front of the House. I don't think it will, uh, and I don't think anything's going to happen to Daryl Plekis, the Speaker. The NDP needs Plekis to remain in office to give them an extra vote. Uh, it increases the majority from one to two, but... Um, the uh, the motion would have to come back in front of the House, so the House will rise on Tuesday at 6 o'clock, and that's it until February. So that's a very limited window to reconsider this entire matter. So uh, Mary Polak may press to reconsider the motion. I don't think it will be reconsidered, which means those two officers will likely remain sort of on administrative leave uh, at least until February. And given the nature of the history of RCMP investigations of of these things uh, over here, uh, this could drag on for well more than a year before we see any resolution in terms of the outcome of the investigation or the laying of any charges or anything. All right. uh, We will continue uh, watching and uh, waiting for updates. Keith, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Anytime, Jill. Take care.